We continue this morning in our sermon series looking at how uh, many of the values in our culture and our world have been intrinsically shaped by the Christian uh, faith. So our goal throughout this sermon series has been to recognize uh, how recognizing the values established by Jesus uh, that are hallmarks of the Christian uh, people and the life that we lead can lead us to become better reflections of our Savior and representatives of his kingdom in such a lost and broken world. Um, even more importantly, our recognition and commitment to those values frees us to be a clear witness of his grace and reflect his love. So knowing these values are rooted in Jesus helps us embody the practices of his kingdom. It helps us to walk with our God, who not only defines what actually matters, but teaches us what it means to flourish as his children. Uh, This morning, we're looking at a story from the Old Testament. Uh, Historically, this story, uh, this account comes after the Israelites return from exile. So this is uh, after the major exile, after the major prophets. Um, They come home to Jerusalem and they start to rebuild uh, the city. Of Jerusalem. And we read in Nehemiah 5, 1 through 13, a particular uh, conflict, crisis, uh, is occurring. And we read this in Nehemiah 5. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, We and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood of our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters into slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to other people. Now, Nehemiah is narrating, and he writes this. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said this. As far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They all kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves and homes, and also the interest you're charging them, 1% of the money, grain, new, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said. We will not, not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they'd promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep their promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this the whole assembly said amen and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
So our children, like most kids, are rarely legitimately angry. Yes, there are frustrations with one another on a regular basis, often daily, sometimes hourly, if they've had not enough sleep or if they're hungry. Uh, crankiness and hunger form a volatile mix. There's always, there's always a crown that's gone missing or some lingering conflict about toys or dolls or playtime. Even with a toddler brother barging in and messing things up, they are usually typically sweet and considerate with one another and mainly respectful of their parents. Uh, I'm looking at Katie. She's kind of like, yeah, you know. Uh, but that prevailing harmony, that sense of, you know, we, mainly we get along, disappears whenever we play any kind of board game. Uh, we always, now we always encourage them to be humble and kind, no matter the outcome, right? But any kind of game where there must be one winner brings out a weird primal desire to defeat their siblings, <laughs> no matter the cost. Uh, strangely, we see this uh, most in games like Candyland, okay? So uh, where any card could bring you closer to the candy castle or send you back to the peppermint forest. If you've played Candyland, you know peppermint forest is at the beginning. You do not want to go back there. Uh, even the stakes are very small, okay? We never put money on this game. We never promise them dessert for the winner uh, and, you know, dirt for the, for the losers. We never do anything like that. Um, there aren't any prizes. We can play a second game if necessary. But pull one card where their sister moves ahead or dad hinders their progress and they act like they have received a Candyland law degree from Milton Bradley. <laughs> Sometimes the atmosphere gets so heated we threaten to end the game itself. There have been games of Candyland where we never know who wins uh, because we've just had to stop. The anger our kids feel, of course, resonates with any sports fan who has ever been frustrated with a bad call from a referee that they feel hurt their team's chance of winning. We have this deep uh, anger when it comes to things of justice. One thing uh, college football fans, which started uh, this past week, can agree on, everybody, no matter your team, is that the referee is blind. <laughs> Uh, their team did everything right, and the other team cheated. They can all agree on that. But if we're honest, we feel that kind of anger in us whenever we see something that isn't fair or right or just. And in a fractured world like ours, that feeling uh, is never too far away. There's a lot of things that are broken and wrong. There's a lot of things that don't meet our standards of righteousness or justice. Uh, we live in a fairly fallen world. The anger Nehemiah shows towards his fellow Israelites as they're attempting to rebuild Jerusalem after the exile then should not surprise us because Nehemiah is angry at the beginning of chapter 5. Ever since the people of God had returned, uh, had returned home, they've been struggling against enemies who preferred them much better as slaves in a foreign country instead of their immediate neighbors. Now, Nehemiah had spent the first uh, five, four chapters of the book leading the Israelites to victory against this external threat. But then a new internal threat cut this celebration, their progress, short. In the middle of a famine, wealthy landowners took advantage of a fragile situation to increase their wealth in three ways. And here's how they did it. 
First, they arranged mortgages with people on the edge of starvation. And they charged unreasonable interest because they knew how desperate the poor were, were to put food on the table and feed their families. Second, the poor extended those loans for more money to pay already existing taxes that were owed to the king of Persia who would let them return home to Jerusalem. That meant they lost uh, so most families uh, volunteer, volunteered their labor and time to work on the wall that was being rebuilt around Jerusalem. So that meant that they lost income from their regular jobs. Third, families were forced to use their freedom, their literal freedom, as collateral, which, return, which resulted in a return to slavery. Now, as a result, the people who were, who were put under these uh, restrictions cried out to God for justice, saying, this is not right. Please help us. Their hearts were broken, not just by the condition, not just by the famine, not just by the fact that they're rebuilding a city uh, with enemies around them, but the lack of compassion from people that they considered family. The Hebrew word uh, used here for crying out is the same one, the exact same phrase uh, used that, uh, to describe the despair the Israelites felt when they were slaves in Egypt. That is not a coincidence uh, in Hebrew. The injustice that Nehemiah witnessed was so far outside the bounds of acceptable behavior, he took time in verse 7 to be alone and let his anger cool. He said, I, I had to step aside and go and collect my thoughts. Because what incensed Nehemiah most was the perverse step of forcing recently freed slaves back into slavery. And these recently freed slaves were not strangers, but basically extended family, people that they knew. Rather than obeying the commands of the Lord and helping others, the wealthy people of Israel focused instead solely on themselves. Now, this makes some amount of sense. Making plans that preserve your own home or family is logical in times of deep uncertainty. Nehemiah and his friends had only been working on the wall, if we did the timeline, they'd only been working in Jerusalem to rebuild the city uh, for about a month. Now, these people, they might succeed, but they could fail too. So taking advantage of those less fortunate might have been unpleasant, but it ensured their survival. But for Nehemiah, these actions pointed to an underlying spiritual crisis. The people who were doing this were also slaves to their sin. Their inclination for self-preservation had evolved into pure selfishness. Rather than putting their resources toward the restoration of their family, they profited off their misfortune. They harmed desperate and vulnerable people. They were unable to see past their own needs, and so they focused solely on themselves, forgetting the Lord's commands and the character of uh, their Lord uh, himself. If they'd even casually glanced at the law, they would have recognized that their God had always, uh, their God always had a heart for the poor and expected his people to have the same kind of attitude. In Exodus 22, God explicitly forbids his people to charge interest to the poor, warning that he would notice if they disobeyed. He says this, uh, Yahweh says this in Exodus, if you lend money uh, 
To any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not exact interest from him. And if he cries out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. The Lord expands this in Leviticus 25 uh, when he says, If your brother becomes poor, you shall support him and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God. That your brother may live beside you, you shall not make him your slave. Both of these passages reveal that the law is not just a set of rules. It's a reflection of God's heart. When Cain asks, am I my brother's keeper? Uh, The answer for God's people is, yes, you are your brother's keeper. The 99th question of the Westminster Catechism reminds us that for every direct prohibition found in the Old Testament, the Lord expects the corresponding duty to be fulfilled too. So when God says, do not kill, he requires us not only to refrain from hurting other people, but is actually commanding us to help everybody flourish. The phrase to fear the Lord that Nehemiah uses can also mean knowing who God is. Had they known the Lord as the author of redemption, the one who hears the cries of the innocent and works to restore those worn down by injustice, they would not have even thought about taking advantage of their brothers and sisters. Knowing who God is results in loving others, helping to restore and redeem them to the best of your ability so that they and you might flourish as part of God's family. Had the wealthy people of Israel at this time known who God was, they would not have taken advantage of those less fortunate. And yet, in the same moment that Nehemiah holds those people to account, we find a hidden moment of grace. To their eternal benefit, Nehemiah does know who God is. He knows God's character and he knows the damage unrestrained selfishness can have on others. And his goal is not just the, re- uh, the redemption of those who were hurt, but the redemption of those who had done wrong. Foreshadowing the story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19, Nehemiah demands that they repay everything that they've taken, release everybody in slavery, and repent of their sin. Even though selfishness led them far from the Lord, uh, Nehemiah desired their restoration because their God desired it first. Now, it's good because at the end of this passage, we see that most of them seems to have repented. They do give uh, what they had taken back. But we don't know the extended uh, future. We don't know if that's something that they kept on doing. They aren't really mentioned again, and that could be good or bad. Uh, But the grace we see here should give us hope. See, we tend, when we read these stories, we tend to identify with those who have been wronged. But we are often just as selfish as those who did harm. At our core, we are selfish creatures, most often focused on our own needs than God or his commands or other people. C.S. Lewis wrote, uh, at this very moment, you and I are either committing an act of selfishness, about to commit one, or repenting of it. I think that's a great line. We may not create schemes to take advantage of other people, but we justify our lack of compassion. 
as being too busy to get involved or not having the resources needed or time to invest. We rarely think about how to make the lives of other people better, much less how to help our community flourish. But just as the wealthy Israelites are called back to seek the redemption of their brothers and sisters by Nehemiah, so does Jesus free us to live into the exponential goodness of his love. See, like, like Nehemiah, Jesus redeems not only those who have been wrong, but those who've been doing wrong too. And the difference that we find in Jesus, the salvation we find in Jesus frees us from the wages of sin, but also frees us to be agents of his redemption in the world here and now. When the love of God breaks into our hearts, we are rescued Not just from the penalty, but the status quo of our selfishness. We are freed not just from the consequences, but we are invited into a deeper and more generous life. By the blood of Jesus, we are pulled into a process of transformation that promises to make our hearts more like his. He breaks our self-centered tendencies so we might be free to love others like he loves us. Now, the principle, this principle can be seen in the lives of disciples in the early church. Known for their compassion to the forgotten people of Roman uh, culture, early believers made love the hallmark of their lives. Rescuing children, the surrounding culture deemed worthless or defective, providing for widows who could not take care of themselves, attending to the sick who could not pay for treatment, erasing one another's debts. Those were just a few things early Christians did to uh, display their love to the world. Early church father Tertullian says that members of Roman society would often remark to one another about believers, about this weird Christian movement, see how they love one another. Paul outlines the unlimited potential of spiritual liberty in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The difference is this. In Jesus, we are freed from the tyranny of self-preservation, and freed to love one another as originally designed. John echoes this in his first letter when he writes, We love because he first loved us. Because he has redeemed normal people like you and me, we are free to practice rhythms of redemption in our own lives. Our culture has a tendency to look at freedom as to do what we want. To think, ah yes, I can choose this instead of that. But in Jesus, we understand freedom is freedom from the self. Freedom from our selfish inclinations. Freedom from our inner uh, desires that only think about me. And we are freed from that so we can think and look around and say we are free to love other people. We're free to think about the other people in our life, in our home, in our community. 
Do you know this past uh, Christmas, someone walked into a Walmart and paid off a stranger's debts that were on layaway? Now, it was revealed later to be a celebrity. I think it was uh, Shaquille O'Neal, actually. But surprisingly, what was strange was this, the last few Christmases was that this practice spread among regular people who wanted to help ease another person's burdens. And so families who were struggling would come up to the Walmart counter and say, I need to pay the next, you know, balance. I need to pay this next, uh, what's due. And they would say, oh, it's been paid off already. Last winter, there was a woman in Chicago who saw overcrowded homeless shelters turning people away in sub-zero temperatures. Recognizing that many of them would freeze to death, uh, she impulsively booked 20 rooms at a local hotel on her own credit card. She didn't go through any foundation. She just said, "Uh, I'm just going to do whatever I can to help them. There was an Instagram post that went viral, and she ended up helping over 70 homeless men and women find accommodation for the entire week. And there were charities that stepped in to do the same. Now, these examples are just illustrations. They're just a few examples of the potential kindness and love found in the human heart. But as Christians, we are, we are free to step into the full, unlimited potential of a life rooted in love and share it with the world around us. As we are transformed into his image, we start to do the things that Jesus would do for other people. Instead of ignoring the stranger in the checkout line, avoiding our distressed co-workers, snubbing the neighbors across the street who voted for the other guy the last election. Instead of doing all those things that multiply indifference and brokenness, we start to think differently when we know Jesus. How can we make things better? How can we help restore to someone else a little bit of hope? How can I bring a little bit more light into the darkness of such a broken, confused, and chaotic world? How can I use my own resources to make this world more like his kingdom? See, that is the freedom that we have in Jesus. And of course, it's hard to live and to love like Jesus loved, but Jesus died so we might become more like him every day of our lives. Paul says in Galatians that Sue uh, was talking about earlier that there is no law against, that there is no limit to the fruits of the Spirit. All of those good things that God gives us, all of those good habits that God says, this is what makes you a believer. There is no limit to those things. You can never overdose on love or joy or goodness or gentleness. Those are things that can always grow and grow and grow in each of us. Because we have experienced the love of Jesus Sitting with a friend in pain isn't a burden, but a response. Visiting people that have been forgotten in prison or serving the poor in our community or reaching out and helping someone in a crisis uh, is not a special event. We don't have to wait uh, for our church, for our community to put together a day where we go help other people. That is simply part of our routine as believers. John Calvin wrote that that God is not like men so as to be wearied or exhausted by conferring kindness. 
That is what we can do too. Jesus helps us. Jesus promises to help us love like he loves. So today, let us not grow weary in conferring kindness to another person. Let us be intentional about moments of restoration, knowing that through Jesus, we each have the potential for exponential goodness. Hallelujah. Amen.